Holy God, allow us by your wisdom and by the power of your Holy Spirit to open up the scriptures today that in the word read, proclaimed, we might know your truth. It is in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Okay, so this might seem like a weird scripture for today for at least two reasons, though you probably have more. One, how does this go with the children's story? And two, isn't this part of the passion narrative, the story of Jesus' last things before he was crucified? I promise I will get to one, how this works with extra yarn shortly. And yes, this is a story that is oddly timed for summer. Typically, we hear these words in Lent or even on Good Friday, right before Easter, because they detail the moments leading up to Jesus' death. And the reason we do that is because these scriptures are so tied to the time and place in which they are located. This story doesn't make sense unless it comes just before the crucifixion, which is why I've called this sermon Gifts of Place. First, let's dive into a little background and context so we can get the fullness of details here and then we'll begin pulling it apart. Like I said, timing is key here. In the scripture, it's just about Passover, which is one of three Jewish pilgrimage festivals. So Jesus, his disciples, they're in Jerusalem, but they are there with thousands of other Jews who have traveled from far and wide for this holy occasion. Now, because of this influx of Jews, the city was crawling with soldiers, troops in place to keep order, to keep peace, and it's this strange situation. This city is busy and hot and dusty anyway, but it's teeming with people at Passover. The tension is palpable in the streets as the authorities attempt to put a lid on what is a, an escalating situation. Okay, so this story takes place on a Wednesday, and the days leading up are important. Jesus had just, on Sunday, ridden into town on the donkey to the shouts of Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, while palm leaves were laid on his path, Palm Sunday. And then on Monday, he went into the temple and freaked out, flipping tables over and calling people out for their behavior. Then Tuesday, he had crowds of people all around as he was confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elites, as they challenged each other's authority, crowds swelling in support of Jesus, delighting in his teaching as he denounced the leaders. In our scripture today comes the very next morning. Just as the chief priests and scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth, and kill him, fully aware that if they did it in the open, a riot would break out. So it is in this place, with this woman that we have today, build and build and build and build and pause. The writing here is beautiful because it's like time slows down for this moment. 
Jesus is at Simon's house, a leper. He's hanging out with the undesirables as usual. And onto the scene walks this woman. We never know her name or even who she is. But as Jesus later states, the whole world would know her by her actions. And she walks in with this alabaster jar. This would be like an ancient version of those beautiful hand-blown glass perfume bottles of the 1920s, 30s, 40s. A piece of art, recognizable at once for holding costly ointment or oil. Now, the contents were made from the spikenard plant, native to the Himalayan region of India. So not only is this a tremendous luxury, it's also traveled a great distance before landing in this woman's possession. The jar is fully sealed to keep the precious contents safe until they are to be used. And she cracks it open and pours the entire contents on Jesus' head. The thick oil creeping down his face, soaking into his hair, into his beard. <sighs> that musky, sweet, earthy, rich fragrance filling the space, overpowering everything else. This moment of love, of bliss, of generosity, of recognition by the woman of who Jesus is. It is this pure and holy moment. And it is shattered. Why was the ointment wasted in this way? We could have sold it to the poor. They are, of course, correct in a certain way. This imported luxury was costly, roughly the annual wage of a day laborer. Could have fed a lot of poor people with that. But Jesus defends the woman's prophetic action to those who were denigrating her in the name of the poor. Her expansive gesture breaking open and pouring the entire vial when she could have just used a few drops. Highlights for us the depth of her understanding of the costliness of what is about to happen, especially as it contrasts to the apparent cheapness of Jesus' life in the eyes of those who seek to betray and destroy him. Remember, Judas sells him out for just a few coins. And then another level of understanding is revealed in this story when Jesus responds to those who attempt to rebuke the woman for her apparent wastefulness. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful kalos thing to me. The Greek kalos translated as beautiful or a good service has a richer meaning than we can understand in English. It can mean good, as in morally right, or it can mean beautiful, as in aesthetically pleasing. But in this context, it means more than either one of those. To give to the poor, which the followers are calling for, is right. 
but the woman's deed is of a different order of rightness. To anoint the head with perfume is aesthetically pleasing, but the woman's act is of a higher order of beauty. Her action is greater than these simple meanings. Though it is a good service and it is beautiful, it is elevated because it is timely. The beauty of her extravagant and apparently wasteful gesture is due to the particular time and the particular situation. Jesus is about to die. This understanding is magnified further by Jesus' next word. She has done what she could, which literally translates what she had. So the expression suggests that what she had to give or what she had in her power to do, she did. Her act is so powerful because she invested herself in it. She gave what she had to him who was about to give his everything for her. And he makes this even clearer with his next words. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. She alone, of all that had heard Jesus' three prophecies of his death and resurrection, she alone believed him. Is she the very first believer? Before even the tangible, empty tomb and left-behind grave clothes of Easter? Her actions and Jesus' recognition of their significance and the legacy they hold to this day lay before us a a tremendous model of the possible response to Jesus' presence in our lives. She left no name, but rather the lasting memory of a beautiful and generous deed. Now, in any other context, perhaps this unnamed woman's action would have been wasteful, would have been over-the-top extravagant. Maybe in a different time and place, the follower's rebuke would have been warranted. A year's wages poured out. But for this woman, in this moment, it was callous. It was a beautiful thing, magnified by the enormity of her love. Now, remember Annabelle from the storybook? She had a precious box and used what was inside with a generosity of spirit, even for those who teased her. And the significance of her actions carried on far beyond her. In the story, we are told that news spread of this remarkable girl and people came to visit from all over the world. And what of her box? Was it only full because the little girl's heart was full too? Maybe the box was only full because she was giving away what was inside instead of keeping the treasure for her own gain. Maybe it was only full because of where it was. The box of yarn only worked in one place and only worked for the sharing with others. So then, what alabaster jar are we holding? What box of unending yarn is here at St. George's to use to give? What precious, good, beautiful, callous 
thing are we being called to as individuals and as a community of faith that is particular to this time, particular to this place, and maybe doesn't make sense anywhere or any when else? This anonymous woman's response to Jesus opens us up to what being a disciple really means. Her deed sprung from a personal love for Jesus, a love which, on occasion, breaks all patterns, defies common sense, and just simply gives. Spontaneous, uncalculating, selfless, and timely, her gift calls us to love Jesus in this way too. What is extra beautiful is her boldness. She is likely aware that the others will judge her for her generosity, but she decides to be reckless in her discipleship and her love of Jesus. Annabelle, the girl, her actions too sprung from a place of abundance, of love, defying common sense. She knit for trucks and mailboxes, you'll recall. Spontaneous, uncalculating, selfless, and timely. She too was mocked and teased for her bold generosity, but she decided to be reckless in her giving to the community. And maybe the way we respond to the love of God known to us through Jesus Christ is unconventional. Maybe it doesn't fit into what is expected. Maybe others will judge us. But we too can be bold in our response to this costly love. There is a generosity inside of each one of us. A generosity, a pot, waiting to be shattered open. The jar is precious, yes, but not more precious than the oil inside. The oil is costly, yes, but cheap, in comparison to the one we yearn to pour ourselves out for. So knit your sweaters. Break open your jars. Break patterns. Defy common sense and give love. Spontaneously, uncalculatingly, selflessly, now is the time and this surely is the place. God is here. Jesus is calling, and generosity abounds. Can I get an amen? Amen.